Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 84. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Doc. Hello, Christina. Whee! That's I all know. I can say, bouncing. I know. It's all, <laughs> it becomes that. When we know that we have Tracy Harrison on immediately, there's no other way to be and no other place to be other than we. <laughs> I thought that was the donut I just ate. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, taking from the title of our show today, Diets, Do's, and Donuts, or is it Do Nots? <laughs> I'll take the donuts. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, so most people that have uh, watched our shows know Tracy Harrison. She's a health and wellness uh, counselor, uh, teaches people how to eat with purpose. And she teaches so much more than that. If you follow all the different episodes we've done with her, and maybe at some point we could put somewhere on our website all of her episodes so that you catch every one of them. But whenever she's on our show, we're very excited and we get lots of great information from her and lots of people uh, have questions. So those people that do have questions, how will they get to Tracy? Well, at any time during this live presentation, you can, of course, feel free to ask a question or make a comment just by simply scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Uh, We really appreciate the questions and replies. Most of the time, we try our best to get to them. Uh, during the show, live, but uh, if we can't, be sure that we will always get to them and we will find the answers and we will go back to our guest and find out their replies and we will always get them back either through the website or if necessary on another show. Mm. So I just want to let everyone know that if you call in with a question or type in a question and we don't get to it, we definitely will. At some point, so always watch for that. So I'm very excited, and I don't want to spend a long time introducing Tracy because she's been with us, and her introduction is basically watch all the other shows. That would be great. (laughs) That's a great (laughs) idea. Which I do. I I find myself watching and rewatching her shows, and every time I learn a little something new, and it and it goes in a little more deeply and makes a little more sense to me. Well, so, I can't take my notes fast enough. I have to kind of rewind it a little bit and rewatch it. <laughs> I know. Too bad we can't rewind Tracy every once in a while. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Tracy Harrison. Hello, Tracy. Yeah. Hi, Glenn and Christina. Thank you. I love all the kind comments. I appreciate that. I really enjoy being with you as well. Well Yay. deserved. <laughs> well deserved. Today, Tracy... We're going to talk about diets. And we are going to talk about diets, the dreaded D word. <laughs> I think so. And I want to, uh, as always, as a medical guide, I want to suggest ways that we are going and paths we might be taking. I want to look at different types of diets, maybe even establish what a concept of a diet is when we're speaking about it why people should or why people should not be on specific types of diets. And uh, maybe we can find some truths and bust some myths because nutrition seems to be just going wild in the marketplace and for consumers and for our 
country and the world, people having many, many problems. And so many of these are based on foods, which is why we love having you on. Hopefully, we're helping to straighten out the world. <laughs> so that's our, that's our plan. Well, for me, Excellent. for me, when I think of diets, I, I think of two different categories. One is the diet or the eating style that someone is on, somebody that eats everything, an omnivore, uh, you hear all the time, uh, I'm a vegetarian, I'm a lacto-vegan, I'm a pescatarian, I'm on the paleolithic diet, all of these. So this is one concept of diet to me in terms of what you eat generally all the time. The other are the uh, specialty diets that I call them, or the fad diets that a lot of people call them, the weight loss diets uh, and weight gain diets, especially for bodybuilders, number of other diets. So I want to get into these from both points of view today and see what you have to uh, teach us in terms of some of the truths about the diets and some of the myths. So how about some opening remarks? Yeah, I think that was well put. I, I think a lot of people's uh, negative connotation of the word diet is based on the concept of restriction. Uh, I am going to uh, go on a diet. Uh, I think our biggest problem with diets is that anything you go on is also something that you presumably want to come off of at some point. And, and certainly, theoretically, as you well said, the word diet should um, just simply imply the food choices that we make uh, as part of our lifestyle. But I do think we have a lot of negative connotations of diets, and uh, certainly there are, there are definitely some special concerns that can help people with different challenges or needs in order to thrive. Um, but I, I think it's interesting, the concept of restriction or deprivation, when I think the biggest opportunity for all of us is really to find the diet, the way of eating that makes us feel fantastic, that suits us the best. Uh, not that we feel um, shamed into or uh, it becomes a must-do, a have-to-do, a don't-want-to-do, uh, so that we can really embrace our food without feeling like we're being uh, denied or, or really um, uh, shirking from deprivation. Well, what do you call it, the food police? The food police, yes. I, uh, for those of you who haven't listened to prior shows, I, um, I'm a huge believer, of course, in eating mindfully. I, I think part of our challenge as a culture is that we either tend to want to be footloose and fancy free, eat on a whim, whatever's cheap, whatever's available, whatever comes out of the microwave. Or the opposite extreme, we try to make ourselves stick to something that is very uh, restrictive. And, and there's not a lot of room in between. Uh, when, when in my experience, certainly for me uh, in my practice, but also as an individual, find that I think the healthiest balance is really finding the way of eating, the diet that helps you to thrive and sticking to that about 90% of the time. For me, that's eating on purpose, eating mindfully. Um, but then really allowing that other 10% to just be footloose and fancy free so that there can still be an element of decadence and the unexpected and um, unanticipated indulgence because food nourishes us. It hopefully helps us to thrive physically, mentally, emotionally. But food is also supposed to be fun. It's a huge source of pleasure and satisfaction and enjoyment in life. 
You're a lot more restrictive than I am, I must say. I always start with my clients with the 80-20 rule. So they okay. have 20. <laughs> so my clients get 20% more decadence. <laughs> Excellent. But, I like that. But, but I will say that the concept of that is so that when they start seeing that they feel better, then hopefully they start moving to 85-15, and then eventually we get to the higher level of Tracy of 90-10. Do you ever see anyone or try to get anyone to 100% of anything? That's a great question. Uh, certainly, I think that's important when people have allergies or when they have digestive deficiencies. I think in prior shows at various times, we talked about things like uh, celiac disease or mm -hmm. someone who has uh, an anaphylactic allergy to shrimp. Um, well, in, in that case, obviously, um, a bowl of, of shrimp for, for that person is not going to be a treat. It's going to be toxic or perhaps fatal. So there are always examples of things that unique individuals may need to exclude cold turkey 100%. But thankfully, that's more of a rarity. Uh, I'm, uh, because I think um, so much disease does begin in the gut, and our immune system is a, is a huge player in most chronic disease that I think once an individual has identified a, an allergy or a sensitivity or an intolerance, I really do recommend respecting that, uh, honoring the signaling the body is giving us that it doesn't like it, depending on the, whatever symptoms people get when they ingest it, and, and really honoring those eliminations. Um, but outside of that, in terms of just a general way of eating, I'm, I'm not a 100% kind of gal uh, because I think life is fun when it's adventurous and, and has some uncertainty in it. Well, just for those that may not know, the, when Tracy spoke about anaphylactic reaction, it's usually a really severe life-threatening type of reaction where a number of chemical cascades happen in the body causing the wind pipe or the trachea to close the bronchioles and the airways to close up and a number of other things happen where if it's not treated very quickly and this is when we talk about things like the EpiPen that people carry around with them uh, this is what happens so yes that's a very important part of dieting I want to stay on diet in terms of living and eating for a while I just read something the other day I was looking at some tips on dieting or having a diet, actually. And one of the tips was uh, think of dieting or the way that you eat as the same as a credit card where you don't leave, leave home without it. And so, in other words, what, if you're going on a trip, you should still think about your diet the way that you eat rather than, okay, this is a vacation from the way I eat and from everything else. So always keeping that in mind. Tracy, when do you think that parents should be teaching their children about the proper way to eat? Because most of the time, I know you and I see this and most everyone sees this, it's much easier to prevent getting overweight than to uh, heal from it or to reduce weight? Oh, my goodness. That, that's an excellent question. And, and I really do think it's so important for 
parents to realize that um, children's bodies do not have this magic resilience to the effects of chemicalized food, toxic food, um, fake food highly processed food. They really don't have that built-in resilience. What happens actually is that the body is really an amazing organism. And as far as the debilitating effects of an unhealthy diet, it just takes typically a decade or more to manifest. I hear so many parents say, oh, they're young, it won't hurt them. Uh, Oh, it's fine, they'll get over it. And not only is that not true physiologically, but I think even worse than that, very much to your point, Tastes are shaped in childhood. Uh, Cultural food practices are shaped in childhood. Eating habits, such as eating very quickly or always needing or expecting dessert or eating late at night while watching television, these don't tend to be things that 25-year-olds make up. Instead, what they're doing is repeating what they were taught to do. So truth be told, I think even when... um, When toddlers are um, just beginning to sample initial foods, they're sitting in a high chair, even if they're not obviously eating from a wide array of foods, they're watching what parents are doing and they're learning already about what a meal means. What does feeding myself mean? And so I, I really work with my clients closely to try and help make sure that the precedent that parents are setting is something that makes sense to them for wellness for their child long term, certainly when they're six or eight, but more importantly, when they're 32 uh, and whether or not they, they intend for that child to be well. And of course they do, or whether they're setting in motion some habits that are going to lead down the road to chronic disease. I think it's really critical to pay attention to that. It seems like uh, as I watch parents and doing their parenting and remember when uh, my younger brothers and sister uh, were growing up, it seems like parents, when the child is having some emotional conflict, crying or uncomfortable or something or being bratty or whatever, not that my brothers and sister were bratty ever. But, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> but with with other families, uh, I... I would see that the first thing that a parent would do would put something in the child's mouth, uh, a bottle or a cookie or uh, something to nibble on. So uh, that it seems like that there's an emotional component that gets uh, coordinated and involved with the food itself as a child realizes, okay, I'm crying now, something went in my mouth, I feel better, uh, I'm getting nourished or something. So how does that affect the children as they grow up? I think it's an excellent point. We we know that for true infants, that the notion of giving them a bottle or a pacifier is effective because the, the notion of nursing uh, triggers some biochemical changes in the infant's brain, and it's calming to them, uh, actually helping them to relax and then perhaps go to sleep. But uh, post-weaning, continuing the habit of using food in order to calm or quiet a child I believe strongly is absolutely setting the precedent for emotional eating where people to your show title end up pacifying themselves with a donut uh, or uh, anything they can grab, anything they can put their hands on. Uh, I know we're going to get into it, so I don't want to get ahead of your agenda, but um, unfortunately what they also tend to grab to give their child are the very types of foods that tend to be high in refined carbohydrates and sugars that can um, later on promote addiction to those foods and obesity. 
not to mention diabetes and a whole host of other inflammatory disease. But uh, I, I, it's a great point. It's a, obviously an innocent action most of the time on a parent's behalf, but it does have downstream effects. And I am amazed at the amount of emotional eating that I see in my clients. People who uh, admittedly are not eating for hunger. They're eating for comfort. They're eating for to calm restlessness or anxiety. They're eating for a sense of adventure or um, indulgence that maybe they're not giving themselves in other areas of their life. So our diet tends to reflect an awful lot more beyond what are we truly hungry for physiologically. Good, uh, good answer, Tracy. So let's talk about that a little bit and talks of moods and, and foods. Do you feel that the mood informs the diet or that the diet informs the mood? Oh, both. Absolutely. That's a great question. Uh, I think when, um, when we're in certain types of moods, uh, as I just mentioned, I think we are absolutely drawn to foods that on a subconscious level that can change our brain chemistry. Uh, I think most of us are self-medicating on a subconscious level all the time. And whether it's we are fatigued, maybe lacking sleep, and we turn to something caffeinated, or perhaps we are uh, restless or anxious or feeling emotionally disturbed, maybe depressed, and we turn to something that has sugar in it. Uh, I think we've discussed before that we, we well know that sugar triggers a pretty significant release of dopamine in the brain and also some serotonin, two delicious neurotransmitters. Uh, dopamine triggers the reward center of the brain, which gives us a feeling of focus and um, satisfaction. And serotonin is uh, what I like to call the well-being neurotransmitter that also takes the edge off of anxiety. And we know that eating foods... Um, uh, high in sugar or high in um, refined carbohydrates, high in, in glucose, had this effect um, on the body. Um, but, but it's also very well known that when you eat foods, especially stimulants, those can change your mood um, as well. Um, everyone is perhaps um, facing later on this week over the Thanksgiving holiday, what happens when you overconsume carbohydrates? Uh, you get, especially in a single meal, uh, there are going to be a lot of lethargic, melancholy, tired, falling asleep on the couch with a full be belly and watching the football game with their eyes closed uh, in the U.S. <laughs> on Thursday. Um, so uh, it, it, I really think it's both. Um, I think um, sometimes it's subconscious, but, but our moods affect the food choices we make and the food that we end up choosing changes our moods. Yeah. Um, I have a, a, a question about that, which is, um, for example, do you, do you feel that that affects everybody in general? Uh, I know for myself, because I'm not usually on that kind of a diet of the turkey and the high carbs, uh, that it affects me even a little bit more than usual <laughs> it will affect me but people who are on those kind of diets like on a regular basis does it affect them just as much like do they get that kind of a a, a slump or that laziness it, they do christina i think it's a matter of first of all what are they used to so you only notice a change if it's different from your norm 
And if your norm is feeling a bit lethargic and depressed or tired, then you don't notice it so much when you do it on Thanksgiving as opposed to any other day. But if you are used to a more vibrant, clean energy in your life, then to your point, um, it only takes a small dose of those kinds of foods in order to um, certainly calm you, but perhaps push it over the edge in terms of attracting fatigue or malaise. Uh, But I also believe people are different in uh, how they experience that based on their uh, their physiology and their genetics. As we well know, some people are very effective at digesting and absorbing certain foods uh, like carbohydrates and other people not so much. Um, individuals with insulin resistance uh, are going to struggle with more chronically elevated blood sugar, which has that stimulatory type of effect. Uh, So it it really does depend um, on the individual. But I will say to your point that I often find for individuals who withdraw from these kinds of foods on a daily basis, they're amazed at being able to see the effect of it going back to it. My uh, my favorite day, I have to share the story, Glenn, I'm sorry. Um, my favorite day with, with my clients that I'm working with on withdrawing from sugar and perhaps losing uh, body fat is the day they come in and say, okay, I did the 90-10, just like you said, and I had a treat and I chose the treat that I wanted, right? No restrictions. So I had, I don't know, Oreos and they were terrible. <laughs> I allowed myself to have it. I actually had a gentleman walk in one time and say, I hate you. You've ruined my favorite food. Um, But but, um, they were terrible because I ate them and I could taste the chemicals. I ate them. They were so sweet that they were too sweet for me now. And also to your point, Christina, I ate them and I felt terrible afterward. For, for like an hour and a half or two hours. Um, I, I think that once the body goes through the withdrawal, especially from something that's not only laden with sugar, but also perhaps with chemicals, uh, I think we do get a fresher, lighter perspective from which to evaluate those foods when we try them later on. Mm-hmm. I see that uh, often in people that are carnivores that go to a vegetarian diet and are on that diet for a while and then suddenly have meat again. They feel... Like it's difficult to digest it, a number of things. They are so much more aware of it than when they were eating it mm-hmm. uh, on a normal basis. But one of the things that you can uh, certainly do, I mean, when you speak about concepts of diet uh, or the, in terms of the way that we just actually eat, <clears throat> even on a Thanksgiving, you can have all of the foods that are prepared. You're just not required to have four helpings of each. <laughs> And, and, I think, and I think that's sometimes where it gets. You have this, everybody's indulging and eating and wanting to make the host happy about how great the turkey was and the stuffing. So everyone's asking for seconds and thirds. You can have a full meal and not have the seconds and thirds and, and be okay as if it were just a sort of a normal meal. I agree. And I also think that we can each individually make up our plate. Kind of like we talked about in a prior show, we can make up a plate with the ratios of foods that we know serve us the best. Um, the, The piece around seconds and thirds and fourth servings goes back to something we've discussed before about allowing ourselves to savor food. My goodness, mm-hmm. I, uh, this I think is one of the biggest limiters with regard to um, maintaining a healthy weight uh, when we eat quickly. 
And it's fascinating on Thanksgiving, uh, for those of you who are going to a big family event, hours and hours and hours can be spent preparing for a meal that people sit down and devour in 10 minutes. <laughs> and, and of course, as we talked about, 10 minutes is not long enough for the right hormone cascade to take place in our body to tell us we've had enough. But more importantly, we've missed out on savoring this delicious, lovingly prepared food. Uh, the, the pleasurable part of food is while you're chewing it, right? The smell, the texture, the flavor. It's, it's wonderful. Um, but it's amazing to me that even on a holiday, even typically with a large family gathering, we're still in a hurry to get the food in quickly. And, and certainly that easily leads to overconsumption as well. And it's something I encourage all of our viewers to think about this Thanksgiving of how to just slow down and savor, uh, savor the food. Yeah, another thing I think to do is to not have all of the food right in front of everyone on the table so that if you do want your seconds or thirds, maybe you need to get up and go somewhere to get those <laughs> extra So we can things. all watch you move, right? <laughs> so we can all watch you. That's your, well, that's your exercise. You're burning off your calories. But if it's just right in front of you, it makes it very easy to get that next helping. It does. It does. And um, as I think as we've discussed in a prior show, one of the tips that I often give to people, especially with families who struggle with eating too quickly, uh, and if maybe if weight loss or body fat loss is a goal, is to think about eating food in courses, which, which really helps with the same thing that you're describing. Um, a, a lot of families for Thanksgiving have more of the buffet type of approach where people laden their plates high. Um, with food all at once. Um, but uh, you can also go back to the notion of serving food in courses. That naturally stretches out the meal and encourages some savoring and also gives the body time to digest the food in increments. So we're a lot less likely to have uh, indigestion or bloating or distension after the, uh, after the meal. Mm-hmm. Things like serving the vegetables first, uh, maybe a few different vegetable dishes that folks would choose from, uh, and then maybe the the turkey, you know, with the cranberry, with the, the protein, and then moving into the starches, uh, but really trying to allow the meal to progress a bit more methodically. Uh, it can be fun. It's it's also a wonderful skill for children to learn in terms of how to function at a restaurant where meals are naturally served in courses anyway. And how to be patient and allow a meal to unfold as a as a as a social event. I think that uh, all of this is good information, but it's time to move on to our specific diets. We may come back to just general dieting, and I think we'll probably cover that through everything we say. But I want to start talking about the fad diets. The they call them the weight loss diet. I just saw in a magazine uh, this past weekend. There's now a bikini diet. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a new one on me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just saw this in one of these uh, magazines that, you know, talks about health and exercise and things like that. But we hear so many diets, weight loss diets, weight gain diets, uh, you know, the South Beach diet, the low carb diet, the high fat diet, all of these things. Uh, what should, give us a general opinion of how you feel about them, and then let's start breaking it down a little bit. 
I, I think the most important concept for any type of diet uh, for a for a person who isn't trying to address a clinically intense diagnosis, maybe post surgery, needing to have a short term diet. Outside of that, generally, people shouldn't go on something that they're not willing to turn into a long-term lifestyle change. And, and, and that's why I think the phrasing, go on a diet, is fundamentally flawed right from the beginning and likely doomed to failure because the, the body is not going to go through some magical transformation in the four weeks that someone's on a diet so that when they go back to the old way of eating, they get a different result. The body is much more adaptive than that. So I, I think the, the notion of choosing a diet uh, I am I am exploring a certain diet for the foreseeable future is a much better way or framework in which to look at it so that we're not thinking about going back to the way of eating that got us to where we didn't want to be. I, and uh, that's particularly important in, I think, weight loss diets because uh, so often people are looking to just do something as triage uh, in order to lose 20 pounds, fully expecting that they can work their way back to what they did before and keep the weight off. And that's not going to happen. I mean, the sad truth is that over 90, I think the latest stats were 93% of people who lose weight on a diet uh, gain it back. And I believe the statistic is 88% of those people gain back more weight than they lost in the first place. And that so in clearly, itself, by the way, is is not healthy for people. That roller coaster effect that's extremely uh, deleterious to our bodies. Exactly, exactly. Which is which is why the notion of a a diet choice that allows, for example, for weight loss, the slow, gradual, natural uh, reflection of body fat loss or body mass, overall body mass loss in individuals who are making the change is so important. It's much, much, much easier to maintain if you did it slowly. What does slowly mean? It's a great question. Uh, on average, uh, I would say I encourage my clients to aim for um, a pound a week. Um, I certainly have worked with some some very morbidly obese clients who, upon changing their diet, significantly lost some uh, a very aggressive weight loss in the beginning. But for people who are the more typical individual who's looking to lose, uh, let's say, 20 pounds, uh, I think a pound a week is really quite healthy and, more importantly, sustainable, where they can actually keep the weight off. Mm-hmm. I think... Uh... I, th- I do the same with my clients. I also try to, for me, I recognize that going on the diet, just like you said, it already brings out negative effects of a person. And I think on a subconscious level, when you think of the concept of weight loss, very few people like to lose things. You don't want to lose a wallet. You don't want to lose a loved one. You don't want to lose a pet. You don't want to lose anything. So when you start talking about weight loss, I think you've already sabotaged yourself because on a subconscious psychological level, you don't like to lose things. That's an excellent point. I like that a lot. That makes a lot of sense. So let's where it's you. like a waste discovery. <laughs> <laughs> or a uh, figure gain. <laughs> yeah, well, I always I always say to them, you're not losing weight, you're gaining health. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about, uh, are there any myths 
that you want to bust for us today in terms of all of the weight loss diets that we uh, talk about and hear about? And then after that, we'll talk about uh, some of your strategies for what might be a, a good weight reduction program. I, I think the, the the myth I find most people are very attached to is the the very basic calories in, calories out type of biochemistry that if I simply eat less, regardless of what I choose to reduce, I will lose weight. And that is not true. Uh, and, and this is the type of um, concept that gets very heavily debated in the nutrition and nutrition medical world because, sure, underneath the, the nuances, there is a basic biochemical equation that says when you overconsume uh, energy, when you uh, overconsume calories and your body does not have any use for them, then fundamentally your body has to store them. And beyond glycogen stores, um, which for unless people exercise quite a bit, that opportunity is pretty limited. For the most part, people are storing excess calories as fat, uh, whether it's on their hips or their rear end or more typically on their belly. Uh, That concept does apply. However, the way in which the body processes and manages and the downstream effects of too many almonds versus too many muffins versus uh, too many chicken legs is extremely different. And so it's not just a calorie in and a calorie out. Um, There are biochemical differences in all of us in terms of how the body uh, stores excess food and process it. Um, But there's also downstream effects in terms of what we're more likely to crave or have hunger for later on. And, and I'll just give you a typical example. If someone is over-consuming things made out of flour, like muffins and donuts and cookies and crackers and chips and wraps and bread and pasta, those are very likely to cause blood sugar spikes and therefore insulin spikes in the individual. And, and every time there's an insulin spike, uh, for the most part, that's an insulin trough that is going to make people hungrier sooner and hungry for the same type of food. So a lot of sustaining a diet is what is the particular regimen due to your hunger and due to your cravings mm. rather than the magic of any one meal. And by far, I think the refined carbohydrates and the subsequent blood sugar highs and lows and insulin swings is a major culprit in uh, contributing to overeating, especially overeating to quell a blood sugar low, which may have nothing to do with hunger at all. Uh, Excellent. I think that busted a little myth for us. But now there are people that do actually need to go on diets. You know, summer is coming or a wedding is coming or you're just morbidly obese and you have to go on a diet. So how do you work with someone to reduce weight? The the most typical way, and I'm going to say typical because I don't really have a, a, a three-step plan, if you will, that I encourage everyone to try. But the most common thing I recommend for that 90% of the, of the, the food choices we were talking about earlier is uh, getting rid of sugars and sweeteners and getting rid of foods made out of flour. That's it. Simply and that. Then, 
Simply that. And then um, beyond that, really looking to make sure that the remainder of the person's diet is as much as possible whole natural food. Uh, we've talked before about Michael Pollan's famous quote that is one of my favorites. We should be eating food, not edible food-like substances. Mm-hmm. And and so I think regardless of whether someone's diet outside of those eliminations is primarily vegetarian or pescatarian or paleo, there's wisdom in all of those for certain people. All of those diets are going to be most successful if they are based on whole, natural, intact, preferably organic food, because that's where we're going to get um, a major input of nutrition rather than just a major input of calories. Uh, Yes, and I think that it's important to know that most of us work on the, the concept of anecdotes. We all hear a story of somebody that did this or had that. And we all hear the story of, oh, I went on the South Beach diet and I lost 40 pounds. And that may very well be true for that one person. But a number of other people that may go on a different diet may not have that uh, successful story. So is there any one of the popular fad diets out there that you have found actually is uh, worthy of consideration? Uh, I I think there are a lot of them that are um, worthy of consideration for specific people. And and I think just to add to what you were alluding to a moment ago, there is a right way of eating for each unique person. But to your Mm -hmm. point, the person who thrived on the South Beach diet may be telling their story to someone who's going to thrive if they choose a vegan diet Mm -hmm. um, or someone who chooses a ketogenic diet. Um, there, there are all sorts of different options and it's not so much about following the fad as much as beginning to explore and try and find what works best for you. And and so I I think, um, the, the only issue with trying certain diets is that when people find that they don't work for them, they tend to give up on the goal entirely. You know, I want to lose weight. I tried the South Beach diet. It didn't work for me. So I just went back to eating what I was eating before. Well, okay, why don't we try the South Beach for a month? See how you feel. Take notes. Is your energy higher or lower? Is your waist size higher or lower? Do your clothes fit better or worse? And then at the end of that month, evaluate. Is this working for me? Maybe. Not so much. Great. Try something else for a month. But during the month that you're trying it, really try to honor the principles of it. Um, they're based on our genetic differences, our, our cultural differences. Certainly, people who have come from a heritage of vegetarian um, individuals, they are probably going to feel better. Odds are, they're going to feel better maintaining more like a vegetarian diet. Mm-hmm. Um, that's genetics at work. Um, but but the myth that everyone is going to lose weight on a vegetarian diet is not true. I've seen people lose lots of weight on a vegetarian diet. I've seen people gain significant weight on a vegetarian diet. Um, because we have such a huge um, incidence of insulin resistance, which is a very particular reason why people would be overweight. Because of that, I find that a reduced carbohydrate diet, especially as I mentioned, the reduced refined carbohydrate diet works for a lot of people, but nothing works for everyone. 
Let's um, move on Glenn, to yes. Uh, we actually had a question come in, so I'd like to share that with um, with Tracy. Um, I've been a vegetarian since I was a teen, but I've ceased looking like a thin vegetarian. I eat whole food, plenty of greens, and stay away from processed starches. What would I try to do to lose weight? That's a great question. Um, What I would typically recommend to an individual like that, if that's all I know, is, um, as I said before, eliminating foods made out of flour. Uh, Even if it's stone ground, organic, uh, no refined sweeteners type of thing, muffins are still high glycemic. Um, So uh, I find lots of times vegetarians still eat a fair amount of foods made out of flour. So that would be my my first consideration. Uh, The other thing I might have them explore is increasing the protein in their diet a bit. Uh, And that might be um, such a thing as increasing um, eggs or seeds in the diet and maybe decreasing starches a bit, Uh, even whole grains. Uh, As nutritious as they can be, whole grains are very dense with carbohydrates. And even if you're a vegetarian, you may need to just uh, change up a bit the ratio of protein, fat, and carbohydrates to find the sweet spot that helps you to lose weight but still gives you good energy. So those are the things that I would would most typically recommend. You know, maybe having uh, eggs, a couple of eggs for breakfast um, most days just to increase the protein intake, but being very careful about things made out of flour, especially things made out of wheat flour. Wow. And, and you know, what I found really interesting when I started to look a little more into vegetarian diets, um, Tracy, is... So much of the foods that are bought outside, like even at Whole Foods, even at those natural markets um, that have, you know, they're put together or they're vegan or vegetarian based, they're so darn sweet. Yes. It's like what? It's almost like they've compensated in a whole nother manner to to create that balance. But yes. it's like, I can't even eat it because it's so sweet. I'll take the donut. <laughs> you know? I mean, some of it is, uh, to me, is like that. Um, where being more used to the vegetarian Buddhist foods uh, in the Asian cultures, um, they don't tend to be so sweet. They, you know, like the tofu is plain, it's simple. Here, it's just loaded. I mean, I, I pick up a package, I can't pronounce 50% of the the items on it. Um, I look at it and go, well, what on earth is this tofu? You know, and it's, oh, it's this flavor and it's that flavor. And it's like, yeah, but it's loaded with chemicals. <laughs> Would that have a huge difference in how the body is is intaking the food and breaking it down? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and this individual posting the question said that they tend not to consume those refined kinds of starches. But uh, I think what you're describing affects <clears throat> carbohydrate intake across the board. Mm. I think everything is being sweetened. Even foods that historically don't haven't needed to be sweetened. I think our taste buds have become so acclimated to wanting over-the-top sweetness, or in some cases, over-the-top chemically-informed flavor. And the difference for the vegetarian um, individual is that the majority of their diet is typically um, carbohydrates. 
And so they're even more vulnerable to that. Uh, it shocks a lot of people to find out just how much sugar is in things like canned soup or sauces or to your point, these kind of pre-made, pre-packaged uh, meals where there's a lot of sugar even in things like the salad dressing or the glaze that's put on vegetables or the stir-fry sauce. Um, it's, it adds up very, very quickly. And what you, what you have amongst all the whole foods is some of those food-like substances um, that even though they're still uh, anchored with whole ingredients, there's been a lot of sugar added for palatability. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why one of my strongest passions is helping people to wean off of sugar. Because once your taste buds change, like the client I mentioned about the Oreos, it's not a matter of willpower anymore. If you think they taste gross, you're not going to eat them. It's very straightforward. <laughs> um, but, but allowing your taste buds to recover so that you can appreciate the natural sweetness in an apple. You know, a plain sweet potato is designed to taste over-the-top sweet to us. You know, no brown sugar and melted marshmallows required. Really? Wow. Really? Melted marshmallows. Oh. I don't think I've ever seen a sweet potato without roasted marshmallows. <laughs> but I, I want to add another part to that. Um, are, are you, were you finished in your statement, Tracy? Yes, that's fine. I, I do want to add another part to that very good question, and that was a great answer, Tracy. If if you are having issues with weight gain and you're on what you believe is a diet that's kept you from gaining weight, I always think it's a good idea to get some kind of a medical evaluation because there might be a hormonal uh, problem that has to do with your dieting. For example, the thyroid may not be functioning correctly or um, depending on levels of estrogens and testosterones, there also may be things going on with digestive enzymes. So I think if you're on your regular diet that you've always been on and you have always stayed at a good weight and you're still doing the same exercises and you're doing all the other things, sleeping well and all of the categories that we look at, then it may be an opportunity for you to get an examination and get some of these checked out because you may be doing all the right things, but you need a, a little bit of a tune-up. Mm, thank you. Oh my goodness. Let's, let's talk about that for 30 seconds. We need to do a whole show on the thyroid. Uh, wow. I could not agree anymore with what you just said. Um, be, and it's another great example of how it's not just calories in calories out. The body is an organism that's processing these calories. And um, I don't know what you see in your practice, but I think subclinical hypothyroidism is rampant. Hypothyroidism is rampant and uh, affected by all sorts of things like toxins and stress. And to your point, um, suboptimal testosterone and progesterone and all of these things. Wow, that's a huge topic. And it does affect body weight in a giant way. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, I see that quite often. Let's move to uh, another area that most people don't think about for dieting, but I think it's an important one to speak for a few moments on, and that's about gaining weight. Mm. Sometimes people are in a hospital uh, with uh, an intestinal disorder and may lose 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40, 50 pounds, and need to come back with strength. So there, there are things that they need to do. One of the clients that I have had a 
could not eat and was losing weight, lost close to 50 or 60 pounds and looked emaciated. So they decided to put a tube in uh, the stomach, uh, directly through the abdominal wall into the stomach. And this also happens, one of our, one of our uh, speakers on our show and your show, uh, Christina, Alon Winston, uh, and many other people that go through chemotherapy uh, or cancers of the mouth or throat or places where they can't eat will have a tube inserted so they can <clears throat> get uh, nutrition. And when I started working uh, with this person, I looked at the, the actual material that they were putting in through the gastrointestinal, the G-tube, uh, and it was really all about corn fructose, high fructose corn syrup. It certainly gave calories, but there was nothing nutritious in it. And well, there were a few nutritious things in it, but mainly it was not really good for the person, although it did help him with weight gain. Long roundabout question. Do you have anything when you work with people that need to gain weight that you suggest for them? I, I do. And the, the two primary ways in which I do that is with um, high intake of healthy fats and also whole grains. Because uh, to your point, we don't want to do that with sugar or a whole bunch of sweeteners that are devoid of nutrients, but also in the process of weight gain, uh, back to a healthy weight, can still create problems with uh, blood sugar spikes and insulin resistance. So I think the the additional carbohydrates that we, we would want to uh, have that person consume should still be, I think, low glycemic carbohydrates. So I'm a big fan of things like quinoa and brown rice, uh, sweet potato, um, on the uh, on the carbohydrate side, um, uh, you know, good even just regular white potatoes, but certainly with the skin on, which is where the vast majority of the nutrition is. But then on the healthy fat side, I use a tremendous amount of nut butter, primarily because it is convenient and shelf stable. And when someone's trying to gain weight, I actually worked with a young man who had been um, diagnosed with Crohn's disease and was in remission, but needed to gain back the 30 pounds he lost. And he was a college student. And he just walked around with a jar of almond butter in his um, backpack. And several times a day, we'd eat a couple of massive tablespoons of it. And it worked fantastically for him. So almond butter, uh, sunflower seed butter, peanut butter, there's lots of options out there, or whole nuts if people's uh, digestion and their mouth is, uh, is in good shape. But also things like avocado, um, whole eggs, uh, organic butter. Uh, these are calorie-dense foods that are also very nutrient-dense. And so, again, assuming digestion is working fairly well or we're supplementing their digestion, as we have discussed in prior shows, these are th things that can help those individuals to gain weight. Um, still wanting to have that moderate amount of protein, not wanting to flood their body with, with protein um, because that can have a... Um, an inflammatory burden on the body as far as the nitrogen burden, but um, healthy fats and low glycemic carbohydrates. When, when we uh, talk about weight gain, uh, certainly we, just now we were talking about debilitated people, but there's a lot of people out there that are sports enthusiasts, mainly bodybuilders, weightlifters, things like that, that are trying to power themselves into gaining muscle taking all sorts of supplements and things like that. Uh, 
I want to ask your opinion of that, but I want to make a statement right now about some of the supplements, especially for bodybuilders, uh, is that there are some preliminary studies that are coming out now that a few of the supplements that the bodybuilders and weightlifters are using are starting to give uh, preliminary uh, information that they may be causing liver failure. And this is pretty serious, especially for somebody who wants to look good and have big muscles and well-cut and defined and everything else. I guarantee that you don't look as good emaciated and yellow with the bloated abdomen because you have liver failure. So all of the things that you're doing, please be careful about that. What are your thoughts on people that are trying to gain for weightlifting? Any good suggestions for these people? Uh, I sure. I think if bodybuilding is your passion, I think that's wonderful. Um, those individuals generally do need a higher protein diet, uh, just because muscles are indeed um, made predominantly um, from protein uh, in our diet, and we need protein in order to repair torn muscle tissue, uh, which is what takes place, what a lot of people are trying to do when they're talking about getting ripped. Well, uh, part of the process of growing those muscles is ripping existing muscle uh, tissue so that it can expand and grow through the process of healing. And those individuals generally um, are uh, burning a huge number of calories and generally speaking need higher amounts of carbohydrates in their diet in order to fuel their workouts so that they can be high energy and high impact toward meeting their goals. So um, I think, again, it's it's a matter of how extreme they are and how many calories they're burning. The same premise holds about eating whole natural food. Uh, unfortunately, I have encountered way too many athletes who are trying to uh, sort of live off of protein bars. I think that's a mistake, uh, just like trying to live off of donuts. Um, sure, there's protein in there, but there also tends to be a lot of refined sweeteners, chemical flavorings, artificial sweeteners, um, artificial colors, uh, all sorts of gunk, plus a whole bunch of really cheap versions of vitamins, which we talked about before. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of, uh, you know, I have a, a meal and then in between every meal, I have a protein bar in order to fuel me for my workout. I think that's fine in a pinch, but I don't really think that's the best strategy for um, for going into a um, going into a, a workout, uh, I'm a very big fan of a, a piece of fruit like a banana and a, a few tablespoons of nut butter, as far as getting some carbohydrates and also some fat. Uh, in order to fuel a workout when it's going to be really intense. And then post-workout, within the first half hour of the workout, consuming something that is protein-dense, which can be anything. Um, but I think it's much better, actually, if it's real food, as opposed to making a habit of it always being a protein shake. Again, and I think in a pinch that's okay, um, but I worry about individuals who are really making too much of their diet from these refined protein extracts, primarily because there's no other nutrition going in with it. Excellent. I would also add another part to that, of, and we talk about this a lot, the marketing and the way things are uh, described to people where we'll go into a health food store and we'll see things like energy boosters. Uh, Thing, things of that nature, 
for the most part, most of these things are not really true energy boosters. There's no science that's proving that these are really energy boosters. They may stimulate uh, some part of the brain to uh, create a cascade where something like adrenaline could be uh, <coughs> flowing into the bloodstream. For example, caffeine, someone might consider that an energy booster. It's not really an energy booster. So please, especially in the weight gain and, and supplement dieting programs, don't be fooled by the fact that some, someone says that this does something. Uh, most of the time, the science doesn't prove that it really does. I, I was just going to say, Glenn, um, these five-hour energy shots and these kinds of uh, you know little quickie energy boosters that mm -hmm. you're talking about, I have seen probably a few dozen times now individuals who have become essentially addicted to the caffeine in those, which to mm -hmm. your point, we perceive as energy. It's not energy. It's a, it's a fake stimulant boost. But... Uh, Having that daily giant adrenaline surge from the body, in many cases in my clients, ends up wearing out their adrenal glands, which ends up impairing their thyroid glands and backfiring on them in terms of uh, reducing long-term energy and also promoting um, body fat gain. So to your point, anything that seems like it works often has downstream consequences that may completely counter the very goals folks were looking to achieve in the first place. Good point. There's a lot of people now, Tracy, we're all aware of this, that are coming down with cancers. And cancer is, it has a general concept, but just to let everyone know, there are many different types of cancers that exist in the body. Almost every cell could develop a type of cancer. And each type of cancer has its own uh, style of the way it, it grows and the way it spreads and what it does to the body. And so most people, when they're thinking of cancer, are always thinking about it's either surgery or chemotherapy or radiation. Is there a cancer diet that people could be on that either prevents cancer or helps if you're diagnosed with cancer or keeps it to a minimum once you've been diagnosed? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do, and way more than we have time to cover. <laughs> um, another like another show. topic, like the thyroid. <laughs> Indeed, write that down. Um, I, uh, I think in terms of cancer prevention, um, in the sense of avoiding toxins, which can impair cells and can damage DNA, um, and also in terms of getting nutrient density, which helps cells to thrive and to, to have normal cell regulation functions. And these are the kinds of things that go awry often in cancer. What I mentioned before about eating a whole natural foods diet and really minimizing processed, refined, and chemicalized food is so critical. Um, again, regardless of whether you're a carnivore or a vegetarian, it doesn't really matter. Are you eating real food? I think that's such a core principle uh, for everyone. Um, as far as, and again, we could do a whole show on this, but as far as eating for cancer in general, I have had uh, a number of clients have really excellent results uh, choosing a ketogenic diet where all of their carbohydrate intake is extremely nutrient-dense, dark leafy greens uh, and uh, berries. 
which obviously is very alkalizing and extremely nutrient-dense, uh, very heavy phytochemical density. But ketogenic in terms of impairing or preventing, rather, the primary food source for most cancer cells, which is sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and ketogenic is, you can explain that to the um, viewers, I'm sure, but uh, is a diet that is so low in sugar that it makes the body transition into burning fat uh, as a primary source of fuel uh, in the mitochondria so that uh, there we don't experience blood sugar fluctuations, which can fuel cancer cell growth. I think that's good enough. How about <laughs> we could when we have our cancer show, we will go into that more. But basically, it's a, a breakdown product is ketones, and these ketones in the body have various effects on cells that Tracy is talking about. I want to go to another one since we only have a few minutes, just to at least cover a few things. We're finding out now that uh, for years we were thinking heart disease and stroke were caused by too much fats and we're kind of busting that myth now that the fats are not really the problem and inflammation is really more of a problem Uh, and assuming you agree with that do you have an anti-inflammatory diet oh my goodness and and as we are learning that individuals with insulin resistance are, depending on the study you look at, four to six times more likely to get cardiovascular disease because elevated blood sugar is such a source of inflammation to the lining of the, um, that precious endothelial lining to our arteries. Um, I think, uh, again, whole natural foods. Uh, and, and I do think because of the impact of elevated blood sugar, low glycemic carbohydrates. So that gets right back to what I talked about before, the sugars and the sweeteners and the flour uh, being particularly uh, important to uh, eliminate or at least minimize, depending on what you're trying to achieve. Um, another thing that I want to mention that I think is particularly important is being careful about the types of fats. And that when I'm talking about healthy fats, for the most part, I'm talking about fats that are still attached to a food. Most people don't realize that um, the majority of fatty acids, which is the molecule we're talking about when we say fats, the majority of fatty acids are um, unsaturated fats, uh, either polyunsaturated or monounsaturated, for example. But they're unsaturated fats and in particular are quite vulnerable to heat, and oxygen and light um, uh, in terms of oxidizing or damaging these fats. And so I I think by far the healthiest way to consume our fats is still attached to a food. Uh, People ask me all the time, what's better, flax oil or flax seed? And I always say flax seed because the oil is in the flax seed and it's not being potentially damaged through processing. So I think we're generally better off getting our fats attached to food. Having said that, I think um, when we use oils, for example, for cooking, it's extremely important to make sure that those oils have been processed minimally. And so um, the average American is unfortunately consuming very large amounts of what I call the typical yellow bottle vegetable oil. Um, we, we love olive oil because it looks and smells and tastes like olives. And, and most olive oil for sale in this country, um, especially the extra virgin, has been pressed Uh, literally a mechanical pressing that separates the oil from the olives and then it's bottled, usually in dark bottles. 
And as long as we buy a small bottle that we can consume within um, six weeks or so of purchasing it, we're fine. But there is a lot of highly refined vegetable oil that is corn or soybean or safflower or sunflower that has not been pressed at all. It has been chemically leached from its constituent seed or grain. And these oils are um, damaged in the process of doing it. Uh, Depending on the processing, that actually will create trans fats in the oil, which the manufacturer is not required to disclose because it wasn't added as an ingredient. It was just a byproduct of the manufacturing process. Um, And you can also end up with rancid or oxidized oils. So I am not a fan of these oils at all. Um, I don't recommend using them in the core 90% of your diet at all. Uh, I'm a very big fan of extra virgin olive oil um, and also um, extra virgin coconut oil. Um, as a as a saturated fat, coconut oil is um, not vulnerable to oxidation um, and generally speaking has a, a pretty high smoke point. So it's just uh, not as um, simple to or not as easy to damage and can be much healthier for the body. So given the amount of processed or fast foods that most people are eating, they don't realize just how many of these highly refined omega-6 vegetable oils people are ta- uh, taking in. And um, I do believe that that is a significant source of inflammation in the average American diet. The omega-6s versus the omega-3s. Right. The chemically leached omega-6s because they've been oxidized, right? We have to have a certain amount of omega-6s because they are also an essential fat. So it's not that they're evil, but they can be out of balance with the rest of our diet, and they can also be damaged through cheap manufacturing processes. We're speaking with Tracy Harrison, our health and wellness counselor and food expert who's been with us many times and has given us many, many health tips. We're coming to the end of our show, and this is one of the favorite parts for a lot of our viewers and for, I know, myself and Christina to hear that aside from everything else you tell us that you actually have another health tip. I do have a health tip, and I'm hoping I haven't covered it before, so you'll have to tell me. I have a backup if I did. But um, as we come into uh, the autumn and the winter months, um, a number of people may be struggling with congestion. And it's a great time of year to um, put a focus on minimizing congestion. And I find that I, I have a number of clients who have chronic nasal congestion or post-nasal drip where they may always be clearing their throat. And certainly this can come from other reasons, silent reflux, these kinds of things. It is really quite common and I find much more common than is typically reported in medical literature that individuals are having low-level reactions to dairy foods that would be promoting congestion. And so for people who are trying to find the right diet to get rid of that annoying congestion or need to blow one's nose a couple of times a day, every day, um, throughout the year and maybe even more during the winter, I would encourage you to, to do an elimination experiment where you fully remove dairy foods, milk, cream, cheese, 
yogurt uh, from your diet for a full 15 days and see how your congestion does or doesn't improve. If it makes no difference, then you've done a valid exploration and you know that you're not sensitive to that. But I'm amazed at how many people are, Glenn. Um, I'd say at any given time in my practice, at least a good third of people have found that their congestion goes away if they eliminate dairy foods. So especially as we're getting into a time of year that tends to make congestion worse, it's a really good time of year to start investigating that because obviously clogged uh, nasal passages and sinuses can become hotbeds for other viral infections and actually encourage more frequent um, colds or uh, sinus or upper respiratory infections. But the root cause may not be the passing virus. The root cause may be this low-level simmering congestion that individuals can have as a, re- as a reaction to dairy foods. So something to consider. I uh, can tell you that you have not said that one before, but I was tempted to say yes so that we could hear your backup. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, it's interesting. We interviewed Marissa Pay. Uh, an organizational psychologist, and she had a 21-day fast from complaining. And you have a 15-day fast from eating dairy. Christina, do you have anything you would uh, want, and how many days would you want it to be us eliminating it from? Hmm. No, Hmm. I don't. I can't. I I mean, I'm sure I have lots, but usually the cycle is usually 21 uh, 21, 21 days. I 21 like days. that. Usually the 21 days 21. make a new habit, right? That's right. Um, I love the fasting from complaining. That really has the potential to be life-changing. Love that. Yeah, that's great. You should catch that show. It was with Marissa Pay. She talks about that. And that's one of her things she does on Facebook every once in a while. 21 days of not complaining. It's fasting. So we are grateful to our very special guest, returning guest, uh, Tracy Harrison, who has, again, given us great wisdom from her expertise and her own journey. I'm thankful and appreciative of my healers and teachers who have allowed me to be on my journey. And thank you to all of the people that are watching our show and to those that voted for us uh, for the uh, podcast awards. We'll let you know about that at some point. Christina, thanks to you in Segovia and everyone else. Uh, so we will be with you again uh, next week as we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. But until that time, thank you so much, Tracy, and I wish you all optimal health. <laughs> thank you, Glenn. Thank Christina, you. have a lovely Thanksgiving. Yes, you too. No turkey, right? <laughs> I just look forward to those yams, but without marshmallows. I don't get that marshmallow <laughs> thing. <laughs> Thank you, Tracy. That was a lot of fun. I Now it's uh, sharing with, with everyone else around us and kind of going, okay, this is what you're allowed to eat and this is what you're not allowed to eat. And you can only go back for seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thank you. And thank you, Dr. Glenn Woolman, um, for hosting this show. And we, of course, would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. 
Please uh, join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. You can also connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman by following him on Twitter, at Glenn Woolman, and of course through his own website, glennwoolman.com, where I encourage you to learn about his metaphor, Square Breath. And of course, we're always grateful for any feedback that you may have. Please give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. And until next time, namaste. YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Come join Dr. Glenn Woolman and Christina Suzuma as they journey through the healthcare galaxy interviewing doctors, healthcare practitioners in the attempt to share ways to achieve optimal health. Join us on yogahub.tv every Tuesday at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 p.m. Eastern.